We're going to continue our parable series in the Mark My Words uh, series that we're in through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Before we dive into uh, our lesson this morning, I want to tell you about my weekend. So on Friday night, Darian and I had plans uh, to come home from New York City where we were picking up our friends who are visiting from uh, Austria, I almost said Africa, I don't know why I said, from Austria, Uh, they're here, so up here in the front, if you want to meet them afterwards, they have really cool accents, and uh, they would love to meet you. Um, So we flew, Uh, we flew to New York, and we're flying back, and if you've been here for any of my sermons, you know that every time I fly, something goes terribly wrong, and I come home with a sermon illustration, so today is no different. This time, however, it was partially our fault. Uh, Having never been to New York City, uh, we did not realize just how terrible traffic is there. Uh, Yeah, so, and and especially how terrible it is on a Friday night uh, in the middle of Manhattan during rush hour. (laughs) So getting into our Uber, heading to the airport, all of our bags loaded in, here are the things working against us from the very beginning. One is according to the GPS and the time we're going to arrive, we need about an extra hour added to our time to make it there by the recommended time for the airplane. Uh, We we go to check in, we're doing it on our phones, we check in and we realize that they overbooked the flight and we, the four of us, are on standby list (laughs) and that there are no other flights home that evening. And that's it. If we want to fly Delta, which we're flying, that's the only one. So we, <laughs> we got to make it. Uh, conclusion, this isn't going to happen, right? I mean, it's just like there's, I mean, all of these insurmountable odds stacked against us, it's not happening, but we stay the course. So after a very congested drive to the airport, uh, and I, I'm telling you, our Uber is literally crawling through the line. And we get to about, you know, when you're entering into the airport, you're not in it, but you're like on the airport roads. Okay, we are like crawling, like Like, it's so bad that there are people getting out of their cabs, grabbing their their luggage, and running to the terminal. Like, they're running next to the the line of cars. And outwardly, I'm debating doing the same. I'm like, okay, maybe I should do that. But these people, they're having to go through construction zones. Like, they're walking through construction zones to get to the terminal. And outwardly, I'm thinking, maybe we should do that. But inwardly, I'm thinking, I don't know if I can use this as a sermon illustration if I break the law and the same thing. So, I... So we stay in the car, we hold our own. I can see the terminal, it's right there, it's in the distance. We're moving at a snail's pace, and by the time we can see the terminal and we're kind of coming around a bin, we are 40 minutes away until our plane takes off. Our plane takes off, not until we're supposed to be there, not the 40 minutes that you're supposed to get your checked bag in, 40 40 minutes until the plane is leaving the runway. And the whole time, I'm thinking, we're not going to make it. We're not going to make it. There's no possible way we're going to make this thing. Finally, our Uber, I would say drifts, but we're not going fast enough for that. It just kind of moves over to the side to the very edge of the drop-off line. We jump out. We grab our bags. We start running to the terminal. uh, And because we have international visitors here, they have one checked bag. Um, So let's give a play-by-play of everything we had to do and the time that we were dealing with. So bag was checked. We got the bag checked 30 minutes until the plane takes off. We enter, not go through, we enter the security line, which is fairly long, 25 minutes until the plane takes off. 
We begin begging people <laughs> to move up in line, or uh, the people who work there, if we can go in the priority line. They declined us, but about 20 minutes until the plane takes off. We make it to the entry of the security, not the end, the, the entrance where they like check your ID and your, your ticket to make sure you are who you say you are, 10 minutes until the plane takes off. We make it through security after some negotiating and talking to the people and moving up the line. Eight minutes, we begin our shoeless and beltless run down the terminal because we don't have time to put it all on. So the thing is, is that I'm at the end of the line uh, and everybody else is in front of me. So Darian and our friends, they're in front of me. I'm very passive, so I'm like, no, no, you can go ahead. Like, my plane takes off in 10 minutes. Go ahead. I'm fine. I'll make it. So I'm in the back. I get this through the security, and they're gone. <laughs> they just left me. And so I don't even know. The problem is I don't even know what, what gate we're coming out of. Like, I, I think they said 41, but maybe 31. Uh, so I have a 50-50 shot. I take a left. I start running, and I make it to the door, make it to the gate. The lady comes out of the tunnel. Well, you know, with the tunnel, you go down to the plane. She comes out of the tunnel, says, sorry, the plane to the door is already shut. It's over, right? I mean, there's nothing you can do at that point, right? The door is shut, right? Everything, we fought, we fought hard, unimaginable odds. We went through it all, but there's no possible way we were getting on that plane, right? But you don't know my wife. <laughs> my wife's not a quitter, <laughs> And I don't know what she did or said or paid or promised to that lady. <laughs> I was still running down the terminal holding up my pants because I couldn't get my belt on. <laughs> but I kid you not, I kid you not, she comes out, we're all there, and she says, okay, we're going to open up the plane for you. I kid you not, get to the back of the plane, we sit down, we buckle up, zero minutes, seven o'clock, when our plane is taken off, they shut the door and we begin taxiing out. We made it, <laughs> we made it, right? Right? And maybe you've used this phrase, it would take a miracle. Right? Maybe you have used this or you've heard this phrase, it would take a miracle. Right now, I'm using it as I look at the offseason of the Oklahoma City Thunder, who have literally traded away all of our key players, and I'm looking at my, at my team now, <laughs> and I'm thinking, it would take a miracle. Not it would take a miracle to win the championship, not it would take a miracle to win the Western Conference, it would take a miracle for us to win over half of our games this next season, right? It would take a miracle. And some of you in here, you're dealing with far more serious it would take a miracles, aren't you? Right? Maybe, maybe you know uh, or you are struggling with your finances. And it would take a miracle, it seems like, to get out of those circumstances. It would take a miracle to finally feel comfortable with your money again. Maybe some of you in here have known or have experienced yourself infertility, and you maybe have used this phrase before, it would take a miracle to have a child. Maybe, and I know there's some of you in here who are or have fought cancer, and you, you have heard or seen or used these words, it would take a miracle you see, in life, we sometimes were dealt some challenging cards, and we know that from experience. We've all lived this life, and we know. We're thrown into situations where insurmountable odds are stacked against us, right? It's as if we are surrounded by walls, and we know there's water on the other side of those walls, and we can see the cracks in the wall, and we can see the water begin trickling out, and we know it's just a matter of time before they break. It's just a matter of time. We're out of options. It would take a miracle. We feel stuck. And it's a terrible feeling. It is. 
And if you're in it right now, or if you recently got out of one of these moments, you know the feeling. It's a terrible feeling. Even running through the airport, thinking I'm not going to make a plane, it's a terrible feeling. It would take a miracle for this to happen. But it's a, it's a feeling that we all experience. And if you have ever felt this, if you have ever, or maybe you're feeling it now, if you have ever felt this way, you are in the right headspace to hear the rest of Mark chapter 4 to hear the rest of these parables. If you remember, we began last week, uh, we began this series of parables, this section in Mark chapter 4, where Mark has been telling us about the life of Jesus, and he kind of takes a break from that and says, okay, if you were to sit on a mountainside and listen to Jesus' teachings, here's something you would hear him say. And last week, we talked about, uh, we talked about the the natural amphitheater that Jesus has built for himself. We talked about the crowds and the types of people who are listening. And we talked about this very weird and puzzling way that Jesus decided to tell the message in the kingdom of God through parables. These cryptic stories, these puzzles that are, these stories that are like a stained glass window, we talked about. From the outside are lifeless and dull, but when you step inside, when you step closer, they become radiant and bright and full of color. And so now we're going to continue, Mark chapter 4. We're going to continue, and we're going to read the rest of the parables in this section. And I want you to put yourself on that mountainside with the rest of these Israelites, the rest of these people who are in this headspace. Because if you can get here, if you can remember what this feels like, you know what it feels like to be an ancient Middle Eastern Jew who's been living under the oppressive thumb of a foreign nation for over 600 years. You, you now know what it feels like, or you, you have felt what it feels like, to have someone who is not of your people, who doesn't belong to your land, a Roman, who can literally come to you and tell you anything and make you do anything they want you to do. Carry a pack, you have to carry it. They, want, they feel like beating you around, they can beat you around. In fact, your own people are beginning to betray you. They're beginning to go on the Roman side and, and collect their taxes. And now the person that you grew up with in school and your kids go to the same school and you were friends, family friends, he can now slap you and spit on your face and humiliate you in front of everybody else. It would take a miracle. That's what you're thinking, to get out of these circumstances. If you've ever been here, you're in the headspace of an ancient Middle Eastern widow who has no husband, who has no son, who has no means of providing anymore. She can't get a job. She has no rights. She has nothing. She's stuck. And now she has to turn to unimaginable deeds just so she can put food in her stomach once a week. And she's thinking it would take a miracle to get out of these circumstances. You are now in the headspace of an ancient Middle Eastern leper whose body is literally falling apart whose disease is not internal, but external. People can see it. Who has to stay 50 paces away from any other living person, right? Who has to literally beg to people and to God just so he can live. It would take a miracle. And this is the crowd. This is the crowd listening to Jesus as he, as he goes into these next parables. This is the question. This is a statement they're making but you don't have to be a Middle Eastern Jew under the oppressive thumb. You don't have to be an ancient widow. You don't have to be a leper to know what this feels like, do you? 
because you have felt it through sickness, through some kind of economic, through some kind of ethnicity or racial. You have felt it. It would take a miracle to get out of these circumstances. And so Jesus invites you in. He invites you into these parables and he asks you the question before he reads them, before he tells them, do you have ears? Are you listening? So let's listen. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 21. <clears throat> Jesus says to this crowd on the mountainside, do you bring in a lamp and put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on a stand? For whatever is hidden, it's meant to be disclosed. And whatever is concealed, it's meant to be brought into the open. If anybody has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear. Because with the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and even more. And whoever has will be given more. And whoever does not have, even what they have, it will be taken from them. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or he gets up, the seed, it sprouts and it grows, though he doesn't even know how it happens. And all by itself, the soil, it produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, and then the full kernel inside of the head. And as soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it, because the harvest has come. What shall we say about the, what the kingdom of God is like? Or what parable shall we use to describe it? It's like a mustard seed, which is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet, when it's planted, it grows and it becomes the largest of all garden plants with such big branches that, that birds can perch in its shade. And with many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them, as much as they could understand, at least. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything to them. Are you sitting on the mountainside with everybody else? Are you listening? Because if you are listening to these stories from Jesus, the story from this, this traveling rabbi, this traveling teacher from Nazareth, this supposed savior of the world that you have been promised Throughout generations, he has come. And if you are listening to the words just like you were, what did you just hear? What did you just hear from Jesus? What I hope you just heard, and what I heard, is I hope this instills some kind of confidence inside of you. It should, but oftentimes, we can't see the seed that grows under the ground, can we? And because we can't see the seed, the kingdom of God, as it is referred to, because we can't see the seed that grows under the ground, we often become discouraged, don't we? I do. <laughs> However, what these parables are doing, what they're telling us is that while God's kingdom is amazingly powerful, it almost never makes headlines. Ever. <laughs> it seems, it, it, the kingdom of God, it seems inconsequential to outsiders and sometimes even to insiders. Sometimes we don't even see it, we don't even understand it, because God so often works silently, and he works in ways that the human eyes are prone to overlook. And you see that right here. 
H.L. Mencken, he's a, I think I said that name, I probably didn't, but maybe you know him, American journalist. He says it this way, not associating to Jesus, but to the world. And he says that the problem with the world these days is that the public with its mob yearning to be instructed and edified and pulled by the nose, it demands certainties. It must be told definitely and a bit rockishly that this is true and that is false. We demand it. But here is what Jesus says that you can be certain about. Jesus says you can be certain about this, that God's kingdom is at work. It's at work. And and from your finite perspective, from my finite perspective, we can be ignorant to the grand scheme of what God is doing in the world even while we're in the midst of it. We don't see it. Even though it's literally surrounding us, we don't see it. The mystery of how God accomplishes his purpose in the world is so often silent and mysterious, and it leaves a lot of us feeling as if the world is winning and the kingdom is losing, doesn't it? You watch the news, you read the newspaper, you walk out of this building, and you go to the grocery store, and you're going to experience it. And oftentimes it feels like the kingdom is losing, and it just keeps getting weaker. But that's the mystery of the kingdom. Because we can't see in the next week, much less eternity, right? And we become impatient, and we're waiting for God's purposes to come into fruition, waiting for the goodness of the kingdom, waiting for a sign, any sign, that the kingdom finally is taking root in the world. There's this this proverb uh, that's used, and you probably have heard it, right? A man reaps what he sows. You've heard this, yes? And it's often used in the negative sense, not in a bad sense, but in the negative way of using it. Oftentimes I tell our students, right, that the the decisions, wow, I can't get it out, that the decisions that you make today, you are going to reap the consequences later. Whatever it might be, good or bad, whatever you put in the ground today, that harvest is going to come out of the ground later. And if you want wheat later, you better put wheat seeds in. Because if you put wild oaks or you put corn, wheat's not coming out of the ground, is it? Right? Because behavior have consequences. What you do now, the results will come tomorrow. But this principle, this proverb, it can be used in the positive sense as well. Right? And these parables, they remind us of that. They assure us of that, that when when God's seed is sown, when God's seed is put into the ground, it is going to accomplish its purposes. It's going to produce something. It's going to grow. And while we might not be there for the harvest, while we might not see the results of the seeds that we plant in the ground, we can have confidence that they're going to grow. However, while we are given certainty that the seeds will grow, we must not look to our own efforts as the means for its success, right? The seeds, the seeds, the kingdom of God that we plant in the world, it doesn't depend on our feeble efforts. It doesn't, right? The success of the kingdom, it does not depend on you. It doesn't depend on me. It doesn't depend on this church or the churches in our community or our country or the world. It doesn't depend on that. It depends on God. And these parables, they're reminding us that we need to spend more time witnessing to the glory of God's kingdom, to sharing and expressing with the world God's love and God's grace, that we need to be witnesses of the message of Jesus. 
and not trying to develop some kind of response in people. And we get caught there, don't we? We think, if this person doesn't respond in the way I think they should respond, then it's been a failure. Then it's not happening. Then God's kingdom is failing. And we shouldn't be indifferent to people's responses, but we shouldn't be trying to manufacture them either. You see, the seed grows without our assistance. It does. A seed you put in the ground is going to do what seeds do. And there's nothing that you can do to make it grow. Or ma- I guess there is stuff you can make it do to make it stop. Maybe grow faster if you want. But seeds grow all the time in the wild without your help, and they will continue to grow. And Jesus, he cautions us in these parables. He cautions us of thinking that the kingdom is furthered by our grand schemes or our latest programs, by the things that we do. It's not. And I need to hear this, and leaders in the church need to hear this, and leaders all over the world, we need to hear this and be reminded of this, that we don't make the seed grow. According to Jesus, we don't even really know how it grows. We're talking about the kingdom of God here. And sometimes we feel like we have to take control, don't we? Like, okay, but what I'm doing is good. I'm trying to bring about the kingdom in the world today. Why is it bad if I try to do it by my own pace, if I try to usher it in? But do you remember the last time that someone tried to usher in God's goodness? Maybe not the last time, but one of the first times we hear about in our Bible, right? The very beginning. It's not bad for a human to know, to have knowledge of what is good and what is bad. It is bad that we took it on our own, that we directly disobey God to obtain it. It's not bad that Abraham and Sarah wanted to have a child. In fact, they were promised one, but they took it on their own. They worked at their pace and their timetable, not God's. See, what these parables, they allow us to do is they they allow us to stop concentrating on what we need to accomplish or what we have accomplished and instead to reflect on what God is already accomplishing, what God is already doing in the world. And it encourages us to trust that seed will do what the seed's going to do and it's going to do it at its own time and it encourages us to be patient, to wait for the growth to happen. You see, we live in a world where children can now uh, ask their parents, why do microwaves take so long? (laughs) We live in a world where two-day prime shipping is no longer a, a luxury, but a standard. We expect it. I mean, we live in a world that thrives on instantaneous results. I just came back from New York City. It's there. And I, we walked downtown in Vero. It's here, right? We live in this world. Waiting is intolerable to us. How dare you make me wait over a certain amount of time that I have set? We're always in a hurry, right? The funny thing is, is that there's some of us in here who expect to plow the field and plant the seed and reap the harvest and thresh the grain and bake the cake all in one worship service, (laughs) right? If I can just do it all right now, and why shouldn't we? Why why shouldn't we feel this way? Because, Because if the world can work at that pace, why can't the kingdom of God as well? Right? If, if, if God is in the kingdom is so powerful and so mighty and so good, why is it unreasonable for me to want it to work at, at, at the world's pace, the pace the world has set? And the problem with that equation is you've now put God inside the box of your own understanding, or you put God into the limitations of the world, 
the standards of the world, not his. You've taken what you've learned here, and you try to bring God down and fit him into a box and say, you work this way now. But God has always refused that. And God has always worked countercultural to what the world and what we naturally want to go. And in this parable, you have the growth of the seed into a blade, into a head, into a grain that's found in the head. In this process, it reminds us that there is an order of development, and it can't be hurried, it can't be skipped over, it's the way by which God made the world, and that we have to remain patient as the kingdom of God germates and spreads throughout the world. And this is tough, is it not? This is tough. In these parables, they don't make it any easier. But we, through these parables, what Jesus is, is telling us is that, is that God's kingdom is going to spread. It's going to grow. If the seed is in the ground and the seed is being put in the ground, it's going to grow into something, and you can have confidence in that. And there's, there's nothing that you can do or say or produce or put on that's going to make that seed grow it's God who's working through us that makes it grow. It's not by our efforts and what we are able to accomplish. It's by God that that seed grows. But the problem is that we grow impatient because it's God who makes it grow. And God doesn't work on the same time frame that we work. He doesn't work in the same limitations that we work. And we want him to because we want to understand it. But God is so other than us that he has to work at his pace. And that in that process, we have to learn to be patient like a farmer waiting for the grains to pop out of the ground and waiting for them to mature and waiting for just the right time for them to harvest, we have to be patient for the process. It will grow. And it will grow because God will allow it to grow. But we have to be patient for it. Some of you might have noticed as we kind of come to the end of this parable section in Mark chapter 4, that Mark actually ends the parable section, the same way he began it. And if you didn't pick it up, it's Mark chapter 4, verse 2. He says, and he was teaching them many things in parables. And then at the very end, Mark chapter 4, verse 33, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them. The same language, the same words are used in both sections in the Greek. It's as if Mark is making a sandwich, right? And these are the two pieces of bread, and the meat of the sandwich is everything in between, these parables. And what these pieces of bread, these end notes, are reminding, of, reminding us of is that as disciples of Jesus, we must what? Listen. <laughs> I say that a lot because Mark says it a lot. We must listen carefully to Jesus. We must come close to him. We must open our minds in order that the kingdom of God can slowly be revealed to us. And I know that seems obscure. I know that seems abstract to many of you. Right? But Jesus describes himself as the light that slowly reveals God's power and God's magnificence, okay? And the very humanness of, of Jesus, it governs the glory of God from overwhelming and blinding the world, but the humanness of Jesus, it also invites people to discover the, the kingdom of God by experience. And the rather baffling activity of God that's found in Jesus and if you don't think it's baffling, you're not reading it close enough, you're not thinking about it hard enough, that God, the creator of all things, came into flesh, 
the thing that you live in, the creator became the creation, the rather baffling activity of God and Jesus is like hide-and-seek to us. Only that which is hidden can be found. And Jesus is hidden in order for him to be manifested, in order for him to be revealed. And the kingdom of God and these parables that he tells that witness to it, they're like, they're like a piece of embroidery, which I think I have a picture here for. They're like a piece of embroidery. And I love this, where one side, when you look at the piece of embroidery from one side, it's just a big mess of knots and tangles and squiggles, and you have no idea what this is supposed to be, do you? What is this? And this is what people on the outside, when they, they listen to Jesus and they hear his teachings, and really when they just look at his life, this is what they see. They're standing on the wrong side. They see the tangles, they see the mess, they see parts of the beauty, but they don't see it in its fullest. What do you have to do to see the beauty of it? You have to step to the other side. See, this is Jesus. To outsiders, he's a homespun rabbi. He doesn't have credentials. He's not a, he's not a rabbi. He didn't go to the rabbinic school. He's a Galilean startup. He's a nobody from nowhere. And pretty much his whole ministry, his whole life, he goes unrecognized by the majority of people. He has a following, but most people, they don't even recognize him. In fact, people hate him, and they hate him so much that they're willing to kill him, even though he did nothing harmful or hurtful against us, simply by what he was telling them, they were willing to kill him. That's Jesus. And from the outside, it looks like chaos, but Jesus is not inviting you to look at him from a distance. Jesus is inviting you to come in and listen from inside. And the way he does this is these parables. He says, I'm going to tell you these stories, and they're not going to make sense to you. But if you come close, like a light in a dark room, I will reveal the contents of the room to you. You see, understanding Jesus and his, his puzzling parables, it requires more than intellectual comprehension. You can't just understand it. You can't just know all of the Greek and understand it. It requires submitting your heart and your mind and ultimately your life to him. That's what it requires. And Jesus, he used parables. He used them to plumb our spiritual perception, to prick them. Because he knows that a Messiah who dies, a Savior who dies, can only be understood through a rare spiritual perception, through a rare spiritual understanding. And the message that Christ crucified conquering the world, it still, to this day, it remains scandalous. And, and, and it remains a foolish riddle to those who are unable to hear the word with understanding and those who refuse to gather around Jesus as a follower of him. And it will always remain that way until you step close. And so, it takes faith. It takes an extraordinary amount of faith to see how God exalts the lowly tree of the cross so that persons of every nation can find protection and an everlasting home under the outstretched arms of the one who hanged upon it. And yet that's exactly the faith that these parables, that they're calling us to. And so the invitation to you and to me and to all of us right now is the invitation, is the question 
that Jesus has asked from the very beginning. Do you have ears? Won't you listen? And listen to me as we stand and we sing this next song.